This may sound strange because of the amount of time that I stand in this spot and speak to you, but I don't often get the opportunity to speak to you about something that is directly on my heart. So often we're, we're running through uh, books of the Bible. Um, if you've been with us for any length of the time, you know that we'll just take a book of the Bible and we'll chew through it week by week. We'll go passage by passage through that. And that's something that I wouldn't trade for anything. I'm very glad that is what we do here. But preaching that way uh, really forces me to deal with uh, what is in those texts directly, not exactly what is going on in my mind throughout the week or outside of that text, if that makes sense. But this morning and next week, there's really a, a one-two punch, if you will, that I'd like to preach on. And, and it's something that God is working on within me. And as I began to think about these things, just really began to work. And I want Him to work more and more and to just to, to make those rows in my own heart to plant the seed. And that is what has been read for us this morning in the Great Commandment. And the second great commandment. These are really famous statements of Christ. Actually, really, they're restatements of passages within the Old Testament. And if you've been a Christian long at all, you should know that these commandments uh, are high. They are important. They are valuable. They are so needed for each and every one of us. You shall love the Lord your God. With all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind and your strength. And then the second is like to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the reality is, and this is why in part God is working this within me. The reality is that I fall wildly short of obeying these commandments. I don't know if any of you feel this way, but do you ever think to yourself, I thought that by the time I got to 30 or 50, or 80, that I would be closer to the Lord than I am right now. I just thought that when I got to that age, I would be so much more sanctified than I really am. And so here I stand at that age, and I am not where I hope to be. And I look at my life, and I look at these two commandments, and I just can't believe that I don't love the Lord as much as I thought I would when I hit the ripe old age of 30. In fact, I feel like the opposite is true in my life. I find it far easier to associate myself with the words of the Apostle Paul when he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death, right? Or Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And so I look at these commandments that Jesus restates here. And instead of thinking, wow, look how much I love him. I think, look how much I don't love him. Look how I am the chief transgressor of these laws. Look at how I am wretched. Frankly, I feel far more like what is said in the, to, to a couple of the letters to the churches of Revelation. Or says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would you would that you were hot or cold? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Or what he says to Ephesus, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. On not a few days of 2017, that is where I felt like I was. I'm not particularly hot. I'm not particularly cold. Unless it's a weekend like this weekend where I'm 
Other days I just feel like I flat out have forsaken my first love. That my first love, that is supposed to be the Lord, has become second, third, fourth, fifth, more or less place. R.C. Sproul said this about Martin Luther, as Martin Luther thought about these two commandments. He said, Luther examined the great commandment, love the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then he asked himself, what is the great transgression? Some answer this by saying the great sin is murder, adultery, blasphemy, or unbelief. Luther disagreed. He concluded that if the great commandment was to love God with all of your heart, then the great transgression was to fail to love God with all of your heart. Ari Tori says this, he confirms it as well, if loving God with all our heart and soul and might is the greatest commandment, then it follows that not loving him that way is the greatest sin. And so the sermon this morning really begins with a confession. But what I'm about to tell you in regard to this commandment, this first commandment, is something that I get wrong every single day. I confess before you this morning that I consistently fail in loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That if I were to step back and look at my life, I see daily failure in regard to this great mandate. But my guess is that you do too. I think that we agree with C.S. Lewis when he said, on the whole, God's love for us is much, a, a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. We'll talk about his love for us all day long, right? We'll sing about that all service long. We'll, we'll take the, the fact that God loves us and we'll rehearse that over and over and over again that God loves me and He loves you. For God so loved the world. We think of the love of Christ in His death on the cross for us and we'll sing songs like, Oh, how He loves you and me or the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. I could sing of your love forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We could get going on God's love for us and never stop. And this is obviously a theme that we need to dwell on Constantly reminding ourselves of his love for us. But that's not so much what this passage is about. It's about the reverse. It's about what Lewis says is harder to think about. Our love for him. I recently heard a fantastic question. And this can be applied to really just about anything in your life. And even as you come into a new year. And maybe you're thinking about things that you would like to change. And see changed in your own life. But this is the question. If you were to live today on repeat for the rest of your life, would you be further away or closer to your goal? If the goal of your life, or if the goal of this coming year, you say, you know what, I want to get in shape. Well, if you live today on repeat for 365 years, or not years, I don't think you'll live that long. Uh, We are post-flood, so you will not live 365 years. But 365 days, if you were to live this day on repeat, after that year, would you be... More in shape? Less in shape? But the question is, if the goal of our life is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and your mind, and your strength, and you were to live today on repeat for the rest of your life, would you love God more? Let's subtract a little bit from that. You know, we're never going to uh, love God perfectly on this side of heaven. You all know this. But if you were to live today on repeat for the next year, would you love God more or less than you do right now? Would your love wax or would it wane? You see, when it comes to love, as you know, it's a choice. 
It's an active choice. It's something that you need to choose with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. To love God with everything you have is going to take an active choice on your part every single day to keep in step perfectly with the Spirit of God. Knowing that to love is actually a fruit of the Spirit, is it not? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Love is a fruit of the Spirit, and you're not going to love God anymore if it is not the Spirit of God who is doing that work within you. But what about you? As you consider coming into a new year, and as we dwell on this first commandment in our passage today, if today were set on repeat, would you love God more or less a year from now? And so as we step into the text this morning, let that question continue to ring in your ears. And look with me at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Okay, so verse 28 says that the scribe goes up to Jesus and he asks him a question. If you look at all within the context of Mark chapter 12, you would see that the Sadducees, this other religious group, they come up to Jesus and they ask him a question, which again, this other religious group, and they asked him specifically about marriage um, in the afterlife. But after seeing that Jesus answered the Sadducees well, this scribe figured that he would pose a question to Jesus as well. Now, we don't know too much about this particular scribe, but we do have quite a bit of information about scribes in general. These would have been incredibly intelligent people. Many of them would have been part of the Pharisaical sect. Oftentimes, the vocation of the scribe was to copy the word of God down. Uh, There were no photocopiers back then, no movable type printing press. And so they would actually have a bunch of people in a room, a bunch of scribes, and they would recite the word, and then they would write down the word as it would be read. And so these scribes would often do that, hence the title scribe. In verse 35 of Mark chapter 12, we see Jesus specifically asked about what the scribes teach. And in Matthew chapter 7, if you remember at the end, when Jesus gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people are just astounded and they're marveling at the teaching of Jesus because they, that he is not teaching them as one of their scribes, but he is teaching them as one with authority. And so not only did these scribes copy the word of God down, but they would have taught it as well. If the scribes and Pharisees... They would often sit around and bat around questions concerning the law of Moses. Which law was important? Which law was more important? What were the weightier ones and what were the less weighty ones? Maybe for us today, we would sit around and maybe we would think, well, to break the speed limit is less of a big deal than killing somebody. Right? Most of you probably broke the speed limit to get to church this morning. Yet killing somebody, hopefully none of you are going to do that this afternoon. Right? So we would just say there's weightier ones and less weightier ones that we would consider. And so this scribe, this is what he's thinking about. He's recognizing that Jesus answered the Sadducees well. And so he comes up to Jesus in an apparent humble manner. And he asks Jesus a direct question. And Jesus gives him a very direct answer. So Jesus oftentimes when he's asked a question, he'll respond in a parable. He'll respond to something that's kind of hard to understand. But he asks a direct question, and Jesus gives a very clear answer. And so he says, which commandment is the most important of all? So Jesus, when you look at the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, and you see those 600 plus commandments, 300 something say, don't do this, 200 something say, do this, 600 plus commandments, which commandment is the most important? What does Jesus say? Quote something that he had written. A few thousand years beforehand in the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. These verses are famously referred to as the Shema. And every Jew, certainly this scribe, would have been incredibly familiar with these two verses. In fact, in Deuteronomy, uh, they're restated a couple of different ways. In Deuteronomy 10, he says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul? Or in Deuteronomy 30, he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts, cut away the filth, and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul, and to live. And so the response of Christ is really pretty simple. It's really a reiteration of what has always been the command. What has always been the expectation for God's people is to love God. And that's got to sound a little strange to us. A command to love somebody. God says to his people, you must love me. I command you to love me. Now, some of you who are maybe working on a relationship and you would like to see getting married someday, or maybe you meet somebody for the first day, it won't work to walk up to them and say, I command you to love me. Simply doesn't work that way. Yet God here commands that we love him. Now, this isn't going to make any sense if you import the false or worldly understanding of love, is it? A love that is based solely upon how you feel. I think, again, that C.S. Lewis had his finger on the pulse of this when he said, Knowledge can last. Principles can last. Habits can last. But feelings come and go. But, of course, ceasing to be in love, like an affectionate kind of love, need not mean ceasing to love. Love in the second sense, love as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit. So so the kind of love that we're talking about is what he says is a deep unity. It's maintained by the will and it's deliberately strengthened by habit. So a love based on feelings alone is something that just kind of goes away when things get hard and you can move on. But that's certainly not the kind of love that God wants from us. Now I hope that you're detecting some kind of nuance to what I just said. So don't leave here thinking, Brandon doesn't think that we should love God in the sense that our feelings or passions aren't involved. That's not what I'm saying. The truth is, there are going to be days when you wake up and your heart is exploding with love for God. And you're just grateful and excited and pumped for what he is doing in your life. And you you love him so much, you can almost taste it. So in those moments, you think, choose to love him? I I don't need a command. I I love my God. But then there are going to be days where it feels like you're hanging by a thread. And on those days, it's vital for you, despite the feelings, despite whether you're feeling low that day, that you actively choose to reciprocate his love for you. So your love for him should produce emotion. Because you love him, you should weep for joy. Your heart should swell with love for God as you sing of his goodness and worship. But your passions ebb and flow, which is where this active choice to love needs to be daily. It's a deliberate choice. Love, I command you, love the Lord your God. 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yet do you realize, although we have that problem, that God doesn't have this problem. So while your love for God might ebb and flow, and while you and I fail consistently to love Him as we should, do you realize that God's love for you does not ebb or flow? It never moves. The book of Jeremiah talks about God loving with an everlasting love. God will never love you more than He does right now. Think about that. God will never love you more than He does right now. Now, and this is good news. As humans, our love does wax and wane for for God and for other people. It's just kind of always going up and down based on those feelings. But hopefully we're growing in our love for our spouse and our kids and for our church family and on and on. The goal is that our our love grows and we're conditioned to think about love that way. That our our love should be growing for other people. And we're sad when, or others are sad when they feel like our love is lessening for them. But God's love does not grow or diminish. God loves perfectly. The Apostle John says it very clearly in three words. God is love. This is what's known as simplicity. The attributes of God are indistinguishable from God himself. So when you consider the righteousness and the holiness and the justice and the love of God, he is those things. He is those things all the way to the max. So it's not just the fact that um, God is righteous and he can kind of grow or lose righteousness. Not at all. He is righteousness. He is justice. He is holiness. He is love. And so that is good news for us. Because on those days when we feel like our good days and when we feel our bad days, God's love for you is not going to go up and down like an odometer. It's going to stay the same. He'll never love you more than he does right now because his love for you is already perfect. It's already to the max. It can't grow anymore. He loves you. And again, this is beautiful news. This is beautiful news for those of us who have that kind of love that just goes up and down. We can have the confidence to know that although our love is not where it should be for him, we have the confidence that his love for us is where it will always be. Whether we're alive now or whether we're with him in glory alive there. And it's his great and majestic and perfect faithful love for us that gives us our reason to love him. Notice Jesus says that you love the Lord, your God. He's not saying that we should love some nebulous being that you don't have much of a clue about. But to love your God. In fact, we see elsewhere in Scripture, the whole basis of our love for Him is what? Where did your love for God come from? In the fact that He loved us first. The book of 1 John says, we love Him because He first loved us. Why do you love God in the first place at all? Because He set His love on you. Or 1 John chapter 4, 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The fact that you love God at all is a total miracle. But the reason that you love him at all is because he set his love upon you. He chose you before the foundations of the world. He set his affection upon you. Like any Christian man who loves his mother and he loves his sisters and he loves his sisters in Christ. He has a special love for his bride. So the same goes with our God. That he loves us as his bride in a special way with Christ as our groom. 
Look again with me at verse 30. With what do we love him? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. Again, R.C. Sproul says, loving God with one's entire heart means loving him from the very root of our being. That loving God with one's entire soul means loving him passionately, not in a tepid manner. That loving God with all of one's strength means loving him with all of the power that we can muster. And that loving him with all of one's mind means loving him by studying his ways and his character as revealed in the word. Is that how you love God? Is that how you love God? From the very root of your being? with all of your passions, with all of your power, with all of your mental capacity, that every thought is taken captive to the obedience of Christ. This is the absolute high requirement of God. This is the maximum mandatum, the maximum mandate. And it's so troubling for me as I consider again my own life. That how am I going to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because if Jesus had said... What the world's banner currently, and I guess always has been, that your greatest obligation is to love yourself. Man, that's easy. That is easy to love myself. Love myself with all of my heart? <laughs> Absolutely. And there's people out there marrying themselves right now, literally. Love ourselves. Lo- love God with all of our soul? Worship myself? Absolutely. What about with my mind that all I do is think about myself? Sure. Strength, everything I do with my own strength is for number one? Absolutely. This is how you're born. We come into the world wanting to please ourselves. And in so many ways, that's exactly what this command and the breadth of this command shows us. It shows us just how far we miss the mark. Love the Lord your God with absolutely everything you have. So there's the target, a hundred yards in front of you. It's right there. I can see it. I know what I'm supposed to do to hit that thing, but my arrow is constantly missing it. One of the real dangers that I've confessed to you today, and I see in my own heart and so many Christians, is this half-hearted, lackluster love for God. One author said that the point is that God's wholehearted love must not be answered in a half-hearted manner. Why is it that when you come before him in prayer, within the first five seconds, we start to yawn? Or we get up and we grab our Bible and a few verses down, our eyes just grow heavy. Why is it that we are so passive in thinking of what we can yield over to him? Why is it that such a good percentage of us, probably this week, did not ask ourselves, okay, am I loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? We probably didn't ask ourselves, is there anything that I can love Him more? How can I love Him more? How how many of us ran this diagnostic test over our hearts this week? It is that serious that if this is the great commandment, then to not obey it is the great transgression. Friends, he is worthy of far more than your half-hearted love. He's so much more worthy than our half-hearted effort with our mind when we come to God's word. He's so much more worthy than the mumbling that we do while we sing. He is so much more worthy of absolutely everything that you can give him. 
There is nothing that you have from him that he does not lay claim on. There is nothing that you can say, well, I don't think he expects this from me. There's no gift that you have that has come from him that he doesn't expect you to use for him. There's no talent that you have that he doesn't expect you to give to him. There's no hour in the day that he does not expect to have. He demands all of it. And this makes total sense when you look through the New Testament and you see this whole idea of being a bondservant. And really, that's kind of a a weak way to put it. It's actually a slave. To be a slave to God, he commands and demands everything from us. That if God purchased you from the slave market of sin, you are now his slave. As our Lord and Master, he has total rights over every part of you if you confess him as your Lord. You who are loved by God, do you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The truth is, your love for God or your lack of love for him is so easily detected. Of course, by God, and then certainly by your family and your fellow church members. It's not a matter of standing in judgment. It's just a matter of the truth. You can tell when somebody loves God. This weekend, and in coming weekends, but this weekend there are bowl, college bowl games. Stadiums are being filled up. Today, a stadium is going to be filled up, different ones across the country. And for the month of January into February, stadiums are going to fill up. People spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on tickets. People spending all kinds of money to get there, to fly there, whatever else. Because they love it. And I know that a lot of times we joke around that, with that kind of thing, and we joke about the Patriots and all that. And and you guys know that I enjoy that. But who cares? Who cares? We put so much effort into things that just don't matter. I'm away from my notes, you can probably tell. But what it makes me most nervous for is our kids. I'm scared to death for our kids. That if they watch us for a couple decades with a half-hearted love, how is that going to translate to them? What are the chances that we love God in a half-hearted manner and our kids grow up and end up loving Him with their whole hearts? It doesn't, doesn't work that way. You are the example that God has given to your children. We are all meant to be examples to one another. I as your pastor, Mike as your elder, we are meant to be examples to one another. And so often, what I'm afraid of is that even starting with ourselves, that we cannot say, imitate us as we imitate Jesus. And you might not be able to say to your kid, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Because if they were to do that, they would end up with the same apathetic, halfway love that we have. So often, we resort to putting on hypocritical veneer, and we hope that the rest of the church family buys it. So we put on a performance. We're good at performance. We're good at making it look like we love him. So on a superficial level, we can do the whitewashed tomb thing. We can look good on the outside, but lack love on the inside. But there's a problem. Because although we might be able to fool one another for a while, the problem is for us is that God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God looks at your heart. He knows exactly the state of your heart. 
He knows precisely if you love him or not, or if your love for him is growing, or if you live your life to follow him and to love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You cannot fool God. But what about our scribe? He's asked Jesus a question about the greatest commandment. Jesus gives him a response. But how will our scribe respond? Look at verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so you see that this man agreed with Jesus. You're right, teacher, he says. These are the great commands, even to point to, he confesses that loving God and others is even more important than whole burnt offerings. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 34, listen, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So you notice that in Jesus' response back to him, that the scribe was on track, but he hadn't reached the destination And what you need to hear is that if you are not a Christian and you're here today, is that you can have the right answer to this question and even believe that it is the right answer and still not be a member of the kingdom of God. The scribe asks the question. Jesus answers it. The scribe says, yep, you're right. It's the most important. And Jesus essentially says, agreed. And you're not far from the kingdom. Just knowing the right answer does not make you a part of the kingdom of God. And although we don't know how all of this is played out in the life of this man, how is it played out in yours? Friend, do you just know the right answer to the question concerning the great commandment? Or is it practiced daily in your life under the power of the Spirit? As we conclude, the age-old formula applies, doesn't it? God has told us something to do. He has given us the great commandment. We know that we cannot perfectly obey it. And until we reach the glorified status, we won't be able to obey it. But Jesus came perfectly and he did obey this perfectly. Jesus perfectly loved the Father and the Spirit perfectly. And the key for us is that by trusting in his work and not our own work, he has given us not only our forgiveness, but his righteousness. Friends, I think the first place where we need to begin in regard to this commandment is that place of humble confession. Confessing that we don't always get this right. Confessing that we mess this up daily. But then to wake up each morning and to respond to the Lord despite how we feel. But to respond to the great and perfect and sacrificial love of God for us. We respond to Him and we love Him. And we actively seek ways by the Holy Spirit to to see love grow for God. And so, yeah, we fail. We miss the mark. But as the years go by and you consistently give him your heart, soul, mind and strength, he is going to grow you. The one who loves you with an everlasting, perfect love is going to grow your love for him. And someday when you stand before him, in a righteousness that you did not attain for yourself, you will be able to look at Christ and in perfection, without reservation, without hypocrisy, you'll be able to say to him, I love you and mean it with every part of your glorified self. Let's pray.
We thank you for this, God. We thank you for your love for us and help us as a church family. Help us to cut the hypocritical performance. Help us to acknowledge the spots on the whitewashed tomb. That we're imperfect. That we fall so far short of this. But Lord, help us to consider how we can spur one another on to love and good works. To love you. Help us to do this for one another. Within our families, within our church family. Lord, as the years go by and we spend so much time together sitting under your word and thinking about these things. Help us, Lord, to love you in a greater way. I thank you for this and what you're going to do by your spirit. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to close with two songs. Come Thou Fount and More Love to Thee.